0: bibles to romans 9 14 through 18 romans 9 14 through 18 we're gonna do our best to try to answer the question is god fair when he chooses those to be saved by his grace through faith in christ when he chooses them unconditionally that's what we we kind of introduced this last week and and we said that uh, when we look at unconditional election, and I'm sure you've already kind of experienced this, you can relate to this, that there's three basic objections to the teaching of uh, that we've been looking at in Romans chapter 9. What's the first? It's a question of fairness. Is that fair? That's what we're going to deal with. That's what 14 through 18 deals with. The second question is a question of fate or fatalism. Well, if, if this is the way it is, aren't we all robots? I mean, why why even try? Paul deals with that, verse 19. And then the third question or objection is the question of faith and free will. Well, where where does my faith uh, come into this? Where does my choice come into that? And Paul begins to deal with that in verses um, 30, in verse 30 at the end of this chapter. So all these objections are there. Nothing wrong with having these objections. They come up. And in fact, we should expect them, we said last week, because this doctrine is revealed. It's not something that we arrive at through reasoning. It's something that our flesh rebels against. We don't like God to be as sovereign as what he actually is. And it's something that many people refuse to deal with. We just we, we, just, we want to ignore this. We want, we want this to go away. We, we'd like to skip over Romans 9 and just jump into Romans 10, where it says, All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But we don't have that option if we're going to be bible believers and Bible teachers I, I I read this quote a couple of weeks ago and let me read it again one Bible scholar put it this way the question of individual election has led more people to read scripture for what they want to find rather than to listen to scripture for what they are afraid to hear than virtually any other theological issue and so we're here to let the scriptures teach us uh, I haven't done this uh, you know I haven't principalized this I haven't made it like a sermon, like I would if I was preaching a sermon. It's more, let's just go through it verse by verse, verse by verse. That can be a little technical. That can be maybe uh, need to hold your attention a little more. But I think it's important on this because I just don't want to come and say, now here's what this means. And then you say, well, that's what you think, but I don't think that. And now we're left with two opinions. What we want to do is what that Bible scholar said. We want to listen to Scripture even if we hear something that we're afraid to hear. Because whatever we hear from God is always better, even if it's scary, than our own opinions and and conceptions. And that's just the way it is. And after all, if we really hear from God, it ought to be a little scary. I think that's part of our problem is we've gotten God shrunk down so much and we've got His Word Uh, compressed down into what we think it says that he's not fearful to us. He's not scary. He's not big. He's not. And I'll just say it. He's not sovereign. And so some, you know, I, I, you know, is it a comfortable thing to read scripture and see things that that are that are more than what I can handle or more than what? Yeah, it is. But it's also I come away refreshed going, oh, okay, this is my God. He's big. I can trust him. He can handle it. He can handle it. Okay, so we said that outlining this passage is easy. I keep coming back to that. I cannot believe that these, what, four or five verses can be this difficult. It's so easy to outline it, but understanding it is hard. We said that it's basically an objection. That's verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? There's the correction by no means that's incorrect let me correct you on this then there is the explanation and conclusions and there's two explanations the first explanation i have here so we'll just kind of use this as our as our introduction to it here's the here's the uh the objection is god unjust to freely choose those he will save by grace through faith here's the correction no way a little paraphrase there no way there is no injustice with God and then here's the correction the first explanation is Moses and God's mercy and that's verses 15 and 16 and the second is Pharaoh and God's hardening verses 17 and 18 the explanation is the same for both God always acts for the fame of his name God always acts whether he's Showing mercy to the undeserving, it's for the fame of his name. Or if he's judging the deserving, it's for the fame of his name. Because he's the one that's doing the choosing, and it comes out of his character. And he chooses for the fame of his name. Now, in each one of these, it's, it's this parallel explanation. The first is under... Moses and God's mercy, you see the clarity of the principle. There's this simple principle that he draws from Exodus. And he says, here's the principle. And then we're going to look at the context of the Old Testament passage from which he got that principle. And then we're going to look at the conclusion of Paul. And all of these supports this idea that God shows mercy for the fame of his name. When we get to Pharaoh, it's going to be the same thing. But instead of a principle, it's the clarity of a purpose. He shows a purpose. His purpose in hardening is for the fame of his name. We'll look at the context of this Old Testament passage that is now that is in Exodus as well. And then we'll look at the conclusion. So that's where we're at. And the whole question is, is, it, is God unjust to freely choose those he will save by grace through faith? And we said that uh, last week, and you have it in your notes, it's very important to understand what's the standard by which we are going to judge what's righteous. What what's the standard? Well, we can we could measure it by one of three things. We could use the world standard, whatever that is. Okay, this is what you know. Let's popular opinion. We could use our own standard, which we may think uh, is better. Why do we think it's better? Because it's ours. Okay, or we have to use ultimately we need to use god's standard and god's standard is very clear it is in romans uh three twenty three so turn your bio, turn back there to romans three twenty three because I really want to make sure we have this established that god's standard of righteousness what do, what does God judge what is just and fair he judges it by his own character listen to uh romans three twenty three For all have fallen short of the glory of God. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. What's the standard by which God judges all things? According to that verse. His own glory. Okay, his own glory, which is the fame of his name. Okay, so here's God's standard. Let me just give you this. His standard is very simple. It's his glory. It's his character. And it is his truth. Because we don't know what his glory is and we don't know what his his character is like unless he does what? Unless he reveals it. Right. OK, let me show you a couple passages that will affirm that. Look, uh, Look at Romans one eighteen. Look at Romans 1.18. I just want to show you that God's standard of righteousness comprises his glory, which is his fame, his character, which is his name, and his truth, which is his revealed word. Okay, now let's, let's look at Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's the same word that he's saying there. Is there unrighteousness with God? Who by their unrighteousness do what? What's that verse say? What do they do with their unrighteousness? They suppress truth. So righteousness has to do with the truth about who God is. They are suppressing that which is unrighteous suppresses the truth about who God really is. They say, oh, we know God's God, but we want to suppress that truth, and that is unrighteousness, and that leads to unrighteousness. Look at Romans 2 8. Turn over to Romans 2 8. It's one more chapter over. Romans 2 8. Notice what he says. For those who are self seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. What's the opposite of obeying the truth in that passage? Disobeying what, though? what's the opposite of well let me what's the opposite of not uh what's the opposite of not obeying the truth in that passage obeying what yeah, okay look look at the verse and there's a but there which is a contrast okay so not obeying the truth but what obeying what obeying un- unrighteousness is that what it says Or do you have other translations? Help me out. To reject the truth. What other translation? Do you see that in your text? Follow evil. Okay. Reject the truth. Obey unrighteousness. What I want you to see, what's the opposite of truth in that passage? It's unrighteousness. So this truth and unrighteousness are two opposite. They're the same thing. When you reject the truth, you're being unrighteous, and unrighteousness is rejecting the truth or suppressing the truth. Let me show you one more. Romans 3, 5. Romans 3, 5. Look at Romans 3, 5. But if our unrighteousness... Same word, is there unrighteousness with God? If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But, notice, if through my lie, God's truth abounds to glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Look at that phrase, but if through my lie... God's truth abounds to glory. That's the same thing as verse 5. Our unrighteousness serves to show the uh, the righteousness of God. So what's he saying there? Unrighteousness and lie is the same. Truth and righteousness is the same. What I'm trying to say here is this. Is God being unrighteous or untruthful in choosing According to His sovereign will, no, because that's consistent with who He is. He's revealing Himself. To do anything else would be inconsistent with the truth of who He is. We're gonna, uh, you know, that's that's a little. It's hard for me to get my head around that, but I just want you to see that this is the this is God's standard. Here's what He's saying: I'm going to show you. The unconditional election is consistent with how I've revealed myself, the truth about who I am. It's consistent with my character that I've revealed, and it's consistent with the way I get glory. Okay, that's, all I, that's the best I can explain. Let's see if we can develop it. Notice in your notes, it says in that uh, little box, God's standard of righteousness is his own revelation of himself. You could write by that his truth. God's standard of righteousness is his own revelation of himself, his truth, his own name, which is his character, and his own fame, which is his glory. That's the standard. And if that's the standard, Paul says, no way is God inconsistent to choose those who will be saved by grace through faith. So let's look at it. Two reasons why God's not unjust to unconditionally choose some to be saved. First explanation and conclusion is Moses and God's mercy. Let's take a look at it. Um, It's interesting that he uses two examples, just like he's been using all through Romans 9, a positive one and a negative one. He's also using two individuals, Moses and Pharaoh. One of the arguments we said to get this moved out of the the realm of unconditional election is to say this is about nations. Nations. This is about nations. I keep reading that. This is about nations. This is about nations. The problem is I keep going back to the Bible and it keeps saying individuals. Well, then they'll say, yeah, but the Old Testament passages that he's quoting, those are about nations. Well, yes, but that doesn't eliminate individuals. And today we're going to see with Pharaoh that the passages he quotes about Pharaoh and that I even have in a chart that I handed out for you if you're interested, when it comes to God's purpose in showing why he's hardening Pharaoh, he says he speaks singularly to Pharaoh. He says it's individually, it's to Pharaoh. I am doing this, Pharaoh, so that you will know. He doesn't say I'm doing it and for the whole nation, but he speaks in the singular. Okay. So this isn't just about nations, although it impacts nations. It's about individuals and their relationship to God. So let's take a look at it. Here's the first reason why unconditional election is not unjust, why it's consistent with God's character. God always acts for the fame of his name. God always acts for the fame of his name. And what is his name? What is his character? It's eager to show mercy to the undeserving. Man, I'd circle that. I'd underline that. It is eager to show mercy. God isn't withholding himself. God God wants to save. That's why the Bible says that he is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. That's why it says he desires all to be saved. This is God's character. He's eager to show mercy to the undeserving, but he does so according to his free grace, not according to human willing or doing. So here's the example. Verse 15. For he says to Moses. Now, I, I I don't have time. Why Moses? Oh, my gosh. I got like five reasons. I can't share with you all the reasons. Why Moses? I'll tell you one thing. He just got done using examples of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where is that all that material found? Genesis. What's the next book of the Bible? Exodus. Where is Moses and Pharaoh found? Exodus. How did Israel get its beginning? God elected, chose Abraham, Genesis. Then he delivered and redeemed Israel, Exodus. So who's the big guy in Genesis? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who's the big guy in Exodus? Moses. So he's showing to particularly Jews who were concerned, hey, why have so many of us rejected Jesus? Why hasn't God you know, God, why has God not elected this nation or has God's election failed? Has God's word failed? What's going on here? He said, OK, I'm going to take you and show you that everything that's going on is consistent with Abraham and Genesis. And it's consistent with Moses and Exodus. And if I can show you that, then God's word is. Is doing what it's supposed to be doing. So I think that's one of the reasons there's other reasons. I, I just I cannot emphasize all of this, but I want you to see. That how does Moses get his information about God, according to verse 15? How does Moses get his information about God? God talks to him. That's what I want you to see. For he says to Moses, this isn't what Moses came up with. This isn't what I came up with. This isn't what you come up with. It's a self-revelation from God. And what I think is interesting throughout this passage, that every time that Paul quotes Old Testament. Every time he quotes it, he quotes, like I said last week, a passage where God himself is speaking. So it's scripture upon scripture. Now, let's look at it. Three things support this idea that the reason unconditional election is consistent with God's er character is because he always acts for the fame of his name, which is eager to show mercy. And there's going to be three lines of proof. First of all, clarity of the principle. Let's look at the principle that he presents in verse 15. I, I, I don't know how to make it. How could you make this any clearer? Here, what's the principle? Verse 15. What is it in your scripture? I will have mercy. And then what's the condition? On who? Who gets mercy? Do what? On whom I will have mercy. Now, if Paul was saying, I choose based on the foreknowledge that some some will choose me, what would he have said? Is God unjust? No, he's not unjust. God will have mercy on those who he knows will choose him. Is that not what he is, is not what he would have said? But what does he say? I will have mercy on whom? And look at at your text. Look at your text. I'm glad I'm engaging and you're looking at me. That's good, too. But I want you to look at that text. Who is he going to have mercy on? Whom he has mercy on. Who's he going to have compassion on? Whom he has compassion on. Well, who are those people? Who are those people? Whom he chooses to have mercy on. Yeah, but, but, but who are they? Who he chooses to have compassion. The, the clarity of the principle is clear. God is not unjust to unconditionally choose because he revealed himself to Moses and he said this, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will compassion. I want you to notice two things about this. First of all, Paul applies this whole Old Testament principle that we're going to look at the context in a moment. He applies it to individual salvation here in the New Testament. There is no way... See, people say, yeah, but... See, he said that to Moses. Moses was already saved. It was in the context of forgiving Israel. Israel was already uh, his people. This has nothing to do with individual salvation. The only problem is... He's taking the principle and applying it in Romans 9 to individual salvation. You say, how do you know that, Chris? Because Romans 9, 1 through 3 begins with him saying, I wish I could be condemned to hell for the sake of my brethren who are what? Condemned to hell, which is relating to what? Salvation. And then right after this in Romans 9, 20, 2 through 33, there's no doubt he's talking about salvation from Romans 9, 22. So what comes before, what comes after is individual salvation. And now suddenly he's just not talking about that anymore. Besides, what's mercy anyway? Who, who, who's, what's the greatest need for mercy in the whole Bible and in the whole world? Those who are going to hell. So the principle couldn't be clear. But what's the basis for the mercy? The basis is his own free, sovereign choice. The basis is not our choice of him on down the road. Otherwise, he would have said so. John Stott, a great Bible student, said this. Paul's way of defending God's justice is to proclaim his mercy. Please understand the emphasis is on mercy. Why does God choose? Because he's merciful, not because he's mean. And cold and distant, he chooses because he's merciful. And we should all be saying what? Amen. I'm glad he is, right? Because if he wasn't, where would we all be? We'd be in hell. So the clarity of the principle. Second, the context of the Old Testament passage supports this conclusion. The context. So let's look at it. Turn your Bibles. Well, actually, I have them in your notes because I want us to look at the same translation, the same the same wording, that way we're all on the same page. Exodus thirty three eighteen. here's the verse that Paul is quoting. Moses said, please show me your glory. Remember? Please show me your glory. Show me your character. And he said, God, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So he says, show me your glory. And he says, okay, I'm going to show you my character. And my character is full of goodness. This is the God who chooses. A God who is gracious, merciful, and good. And then he says this, though. But Moses, I want you to understand this about my character. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What is he saying there? He's saying, look, I want you to know I am gracious, but I want you to know, Moses, that I'm showing you this not because you deserve it, but because I'm choosing to do it. You're not twisting my arm, Moses. Now, look at Exodus 34, just one chapter over. God once again reveals his character to Moses. And here's what he says. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there. And then here's the phrase again. Proclaim the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Here's who I am. Here's a revelation of the truth about who I am. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then there's that one little word. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. What is he saying there? He's saying, look, what's the predominant in that passage? What is the predominance characteristic of God? If you had to sum it up in one word. What's the major revelation of him there? Merciful, gracious. You know, you could pick several words, but it, it, he just goes on and he just piles it. But, but what also is an aspect of his character? You tell me. What's another aspect of his character there? What? Okay, that, that's the, kind of the, the smaller emphasis. That's all under grace. It's mercy. It's love. What's that last emphasis on? Judgment, justice, and judgment. Are, are you see? But 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 it's it's at the end. It's not the emphasis, but it's but it but it is a part of it. Guess what? Moses and God's mercy. That's the emphasis. Pharaoh and God's hardening. That's a part of God too. But even in the hardening, God is gracious, slow to anger abounding in grace. Wow, this is the character of God. So here's the point. God's glory is his name and his name is his character and his character is full of goodness. We could say at least four things about this. That goodness of God is revealed in his amazing graciousness to show mercy to the undeserving. There's no doubt that what he says there is, look, I forgive sinners, they're undeserving. But he's also saying, I'm free to show it to whomever I choose. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. It also shows that his goodness is revealed in his freedom to pour out wrath on the deserving. We're having a discussion in our home with my daughter about this because these topics come up, obviously. I come home and I'm talking about it. And I was explaining to her that while we want a merciful God, we also want a just God. Because there's a lot of Sin and injustice in this world. The problem is we're a part of that too. So there's this tension. And we keep saying it. I want mercy for me. But God, judge those sinners. Well, you know what God says? I do both. But you're not the one to tell me who to do it to and how to do it. That's mine. And you can trust me. Why? Because my character is predominantly. And I have an inclination and a desire to show mercy. But I also have a desire and an inclination to judge that which is unholy. True. Wow. So notice in your notes what it says. One of God's most basic characteristics, according to the two passages that you have there in your notes, one of God's most basic characteristics is his freedom to show mercy on whomever he chooses, and he chooses to do so with multitudes of undeserving sinners. So, is God unjust to choose to show mercy to some? No, he always acts for the, acts for the, acts for the fame of his name. Here's the bottom line. God's very nature is inclined to be merciful to whomever he chooses. So here's the conclusion that Paul comes to, and it supports what we're saying. Romans 9, 16. Look at Romans 9, 16. What's the conclusion? So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. What we have to ask is, what is the it? Now, there's two things that you could say. Some say it's showing mercy in general. Others say, no, it's salvation in general. Well, you have a couple of translations that make that decision for you. For instance, in the New Living Translation, it says, so it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. And uh, Peterson's message makes the same interpretation. Compassion doesn't originate. I like this. Compassion doesn't originate in our bleeding hearts or our moral sweat. But in God's mercy, great paraphrase. But it's an interpret. He's relating all that back to mercy. No, it relates back to God choosing some to be saved. What is the basis for God choosing some to be saved? It is not their willing. It's not their working. It is God showing mercy. There is one reason you and I are born again this. If you are saved this morning, there is one reason. It's not because you tried harder. To be saved it's not because you sought God more than other people. It is not because of what you determined in your heart you were going to do. The reason if you're born again this morning, the reason you are born again is because God sovereignly, graciously, lovingly chose to show you mercy, and who gets the glory i does i does that's what that's the conclusion. Now, it says in your notes, uh, what does this refer to God choosing different individuals or nations to serve him in the outworking of his plan? I keep coming back to that because that's how many people interpret. This has nothing to do with salvation. It all has to do with serving God in his plan. Or does it has to have to do with God choosing individual Jews and Gentiles as well as the nation of Israel in the future to be saved in fulfillment of his promises? I think very clear which it is what is God's purpose in election based on two things one thing it's not based on it's not based on the person who is constantly willing and running working driving it's not based on the one who is constantly willing and running if you deserve it then it's not mercy number two it's based on God who continually is showing mercy to the undeserving It's based on God who is continually showing mercy to the undeserving. Wow. By the way, that's all in the present tense there in verse 16. So then, it does not depend on constantly human deciding, constantly human exertion, but it's based on God who is constantly showing mercy for which we can be. Second explanation. Now, this gets even harder. Pharaoh and God's hardening. Let's look at it. Here's the reason number two. God's election is not unjust. God always acts for the fame of his name. Even his judgment of deserving sinners is to make known to all people the saving power of his salvation. Even the judgment of sinners like Pharaoh is to make known to all peoples the saving power of his salvation through judgment. So listen, God always acts for the fame of his name, either by showing mercy to the undeserving or he acts for the fame of his name by showing judgment to the deserving. Both highlight who God is. And both, even in judging sinners, God's being gracious to get the word out that I'm a saving, sovereign God. So let's look at it. This time it says... For the scripture says to Moses, what's the difference between that and verse 15? For he says to Moses, how did how did Pharaoh get his information about God? Through scripture, how did Moses get his information about God? From God directly. Why? Because Moses was a believer. Pharaoh was an unbeliever. And yet God communicated to both. Graciously to reveal who he was. It's just that with an unbeliever, he does it through someone bringing his word. And that's going to be very relevant to Romans 10. How do people, unsaved people hear about this gracious God? It's by believers bringing God's word to them. All right. Now we could say, why Pharaoh? Well, there's all sorts of reasons, but I have to move on. Three ways he supports it. This time, instead of a principle, he reveals a very clear purpose for judging Pharaoh. The clarity of the purpose supports that God acts for the fame of his name in judging unbelievers so that more people can know about his great mercy. Sounds odd, but it's true. For this very purpose, I have raised you up. Notice what he says. For this very purpose, I have raised you up for two reasons, that I may show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, the background of this passage is Exodus 1 through 14. Fourteen chapters is the background of this passage. You want a summary of those 14 chapters? Here's the chart. You can work through this. Take this chart and you can work through what I had to work through. Now, we don't have to work through, you, you, need, you need to work through all 14 of those chapters. I'd take this chart. I'd work through these. I wouldn't take this just on my word. I'd take it based on God's word. But here's what I want you to see. Out of those 14 chapters, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, picks the one key verse that reveals God's purpose for everything in those 14 chapters. Thank you, Paul. But that doesn't help when you're teaching it. You have to work through it yourself. So let's look at it. Let's look at the pur- the purpose. Let's look at the purpose. Um, let's read again, verse 17. For this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, that, and that my name might be proclaimed in the, all the earth. That's almost the exact quote of the passage in Exodus. In Exodus. Uh, Nine sixteen, almost exact quote, okay? Now, here's his two purposes. One, that I might show my power in you. That I might show my power in you. What power is that? Well, we're in the book of Romans. And the theme of Romans is in Romans 1, 16 and 17. And what does Romans 1, 16 and 17 say? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the... Power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. By the way, Romans 9 11 is all about salvation to the Jew and to the Gentile. What power is this talking about? I believe the power that the reason Paul quotes this is because he wants, he's taught this whole book is about the saving power of God. And how he saves people through even judgment, he saves them through. So what power is he talking about? He's talking about the sovereign power to save those who place their faith in him who receive him. But it's also his sovereign power to judge. Look at Romans 1 120. The same word shows up in Romans 1 120. So we got it in Romans 116. We got it in Romans 120. Look at Romans 1 120. Very interesting, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal what, power and divine nature. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So what's he doing? He's saying, "Look, I'm going to show my sovereign power to save to Israel." And I'm going to show my sovereign power to judge, to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's going to be without excuse. And he's going to be deserving of judgment. And guess what? Israel is going to be undeserving. Because we know how bad Israel was. By the way, when God was revealing his character to Moses up on the mountain, what was Israel doing down below? Partying? (laughs) Yes. Sinning, partying breaking every law that God was giving and and rejecting his character, and yet God showed mercy to the undeserving. And yet to Pharaoh, he reveals, hey, this is my, I mean, can you imagine going through all those 10 plagues and saying, who's God that I'm going to let these people? Hey, Pharaoh was not rejecting a God that he did not clearly, that was not clearly revealed to him. And in God doing 10 plagues, God was being gracious in giving multiple opportunities for Pharaoh to repent and to accept this God of mercy. That was gracious. Okay, so he's showing his saving power and he does it through judgment. Second thing that he does, that my name might be proclaimed to all the earth. Wow. Why did God judge Pharaoh in Egypt? It was for a merciful purpose. And you know who would agree with that? A little prostitute in the town of Jericho. An unworthy sinner, a pagan prostitute by the name of Rahab, who, because she heard of the proclamation of God's glory and power over Egypt, said, I want to believe in this God. So, even in judging sinners, God proclaims His grace. You say, is that how He works? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. It's all about God judging sin in order to proclaim His grace. All of this is consistent with who God is, and yet it blows my mind. Let's look at the context of the passage. Does the context of this Old Testament passage? Man, I wish I had the time, but I gave you the verses there. I wish I could take you through the passages. Exodus 7, 3. Here's my purpose. He says, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. I am going to save by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The purpose is for people to know who I am. Exodus ten one through two, that I may show these signs of mine among them, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Listen, when's the last time you taught your kids, parents, about the holiness and judgment of God? You know, I, I, I was I was concerned today because in discussing this this week with my daughter, I realized if I do not teach my daughter the revelation of who God really is, she naturally comes to a wrong conclusion. And it that shook me. Because this isn't going to happen at school. This isn't going to just happen at church. They need to hear the reason God judged here. It was so that Moses and his generation would teach their children's children we serve a God who is really merciful, but also pours out his wrath. We better live. Wow. I could go on. He's, here, in Exodus 14, when he gets down to the Red Sea, here's what he says. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. I'm going to get glo- I act for the fame of my name. I'm going to get glory over this thing. Exodus fourteen seventy. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh. I, listen, I don't know how to say this. I don't understand that. This is God here we're looking at. But I do understand this. God always acts for the fame of his name. Whether in showing mercy or pouring out his wrath, it's always for the fame of his name and he is a gracious, merciful, holy God. Now, there's some hard questions about Pharaoh's hard heart. Did God, and I'm just kind of throwing these out because it's because that's the questions that people really want, but we don't have time to address them all. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart, or did Pharaoh harden his own heart? What's the answer? Yes. And the answer is yes. The answer is both. In the Bible, and I have it in your chart, you have it in your chart, the Bible tells us three things about Pharaoh's heart. One, the Lord hardened it. Two, Pharaoh hardened it. And three, it was simply hardened without any subject address. But, and in fact, if you want to see all three of those in three verses, look at Exodus nine thirty-four through 35, and Exodus 10, 1. In three verses, it says he hardened it, God hardened it, it was hardened. So did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his heart? What's the answer? Yes. Okay. But that's not all the information. Because if you'll look on your, if you'll see it, you'll see it on the chart. There's 19 times that Pharaoh's heart being hardened is mentioned. It's mentioned 19 times. 10 of those times, 10 out of the 19, the Lord is doing the hardening. Six times, there is no subject. But out of those six times that there's no subject, right after it says his heart was hardened, it says, as the Lord had said. So basically what he's saying is, yeah, it's hard, but it's hardened because God said, I will harden it. And only three times does it say that Pharaoh hardened it, and yet out of the three times Pharaoh hardened it, one of the times it says, as the Lord had said. So what do you get out of that? Well, out of the 19 times, 15 times, it ends up happening as the Lord did it or it happened as he said he would do it. So who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Did the Lord harden it or did Pharaoh harden it? What's the answer? Yes, but it's yes in this way. He did it. God hardened his heart in a way that exalted his rule over all things without eliminating human responsibility. And that's the best I can say. Ultimately, this is the Lord's doing. But he doesn't eliminate human responsibility. Okay? Second question. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart first, God or Pharaoh? Again, the question becomes what a lot of people well, a lot of men will teach this. You'll find this in a lot of books. So just because you find this in a book, say, ha, see there. Well, then everybody has their opinions. But what's consistent with the evidence? That's why I took my time to go through 14 chapters and show you the evidence. You can make your own conclusion. Who did it first? What it's typically said is God hardened his heart but Pharaoh hardened it first, I'm saying you can't find that in the evidence. What the evidence says is Pharaoh was a sinner. Exodus 1 starts out with Pharaoh choosing to do five sinful things to oppress Israel. He's a sinner. He's an unbeliever. He's responsible. But then you come to Exodus 4, and God says, I will harden his heart so that I might proclaim of, then it starts Pharaoh responsible yeah but God initially hardened his heart of, of which Pharaoh had already chosen to be a sinner same thing as Romans 1 and 2 there comes a time that if we can, can, uh, uh, continue to rebel against God there will come a time where he will say, if that's what you want, I will give you over to it. There. I, I, I will give you over to it. Say, how do I know if I cross that line here today? Well, if you're concerned about it, you haven't crossed it. But I will say this to you. If you're concerned about it, then I'd repent today. And I would place my faith in all-merciful God and his son. who was judged for your sin on the cross so that God could show mercy to many who repent and place their faith. Listen, God's hardening is not an excuse to go on sinning. God's hardening is a reason to fall on his grace today and to say, you are a God who shows mercy to the undeserving and God, I am undeserving. Does that help? Now, what's the conclusion? Here's the hard conclusion. Thankfully, I have no time to explain it. Because my explanation would be as big as the time I have left. Because you know what? I don't have to explain it. I just need to accept it because it's a very clear conclusion. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardened whomever he will. Why? For the fame of his name to be proclaimed to all people. Now, if I have taught this accurately, there should be a nagging question in your head. And and the question is verse 19. Look in your Bibles. This is what, if, if, if I've taught this as God has revealed it, then here's what you ought to be thinking in your head. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? Well, if that's the way it is, that God chooses whom he does to show mercy to the undeserving and to show judgment to the deserving, if that's how it is, then aren't I a robot? I mean, why should I even try? Well, next week, I have to answer. But I promise you, the answer may not be any more pleasing to our flesh than the last two weeks. But I hope you're gaining a clear understanding of what the scriptures are clearly teaching. Um. Wow, it's our God. I, I would challenge you this week. I would challenge you this week. I know you guys work. You don't have the privilege of spending your day preparing Scripture, studying Scripture, and doing that kind of study. But that's why you invest in this church and invest in us, so I can't, Pastor Bruce. So I've given you a chart, the fruit of my studies. Now, what that does, it will be far easier for you to work through that chart than for me to create what I'm trying to do. So take the time to work through it. Take the time to look at the Word of God. Because this is what I said to my wife after working through that and getting that. It becomes crystal clear when I look at Scripture. When I look away from Scripture and I try to understand it in my own reasoning, it gets very complex, it gets very confusing, but when I have my face in a sense, just like Moses, when I have my face just looking at the glory of God, I'm like, Wow, you're God, this is who you are, and this th- I'm drawn to this, even though I don't understand it, So all I'm challenging you to do is read through that work your way through these verses, and there's plenty of white space on there that you can write your own comments. And I think you will find that Paul's conclusions in Romans 9 are very consistent with how God has revealed himself in the earth. So, put your trust in Him. whatever sin it is. Separate you. Pray. Father, we come and Lord, I, I'm very inadequate. And uh, very much humbled, to try to explain this. Yet, Lord, Your Word is there, it's meant to be proclaimed. So I have sought to proclaim the fame. Lord, I don't understand it all, but I know that every choice You make, whether in eternity past or right now, right now, whatever choices You make, they're consistent with Your character, and Your character. Shows mercy, to you, yet your character shows judgment. Father, we thank you for Christ standing, and He is both, so that we might. Took our judgment, shows us mercy. I pray that we will exalt your name by forsaking. And by proclaiming to others, we have a gracious God that can overrule any sin. Any mistakes we have made, he is greater and more sovereign than anything. And that, Lord, he can save. I pray this in Jesus' name.